This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the hour, Amy Willens will look back on how things went in 2020 for Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Boy, did those kids get in trouble this year. Jared was put in charge of pandemic response, getting PPE manufactured and distributed to the states. Ivanka carried that Bible across Lafayette Square for that disastrous photo op of her father's in front of that church. And Don Jr. and Eric tried to outdo their father, bashing liberals on the campaign trail. Also later in the hour, Ella Taylor will talk about her favorite films of 2020, starting with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, starring Viola Davis and the late Chadwick Boseman, his last film. She'll also recommend some new ones that will start streaming in a couple of weeks. But first, the year in politics and the decade in politics. For that, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? A question we will take up in a minute. And she produced the wonderful documentary this year, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte Hosts the Tonight Show. It's on Peacock. We talked about it here. We reached her today in the San Francisco Bay Area. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Nice to be with you. Well, it's hard to remember the time before COVID, but some of the key political events of the year, the Democratic primaries, came early in the year before we knew how bad the pandemic was going to get. So return with us now to the Iowa caucuses, the beginning of the political season. The caucuses met on February 3rd, but the one black woman candidate, Kamala Harris, had already dropped out on December 3rd. Looking back on that day, it was a grim one, and especially for you personally, I know. Well, yeah, my daughter was uh, her Iowa political director. Um, uh, so it was, you know, shocking and sad. And uh, and I've known Kamala for a long time. I wrote the first major feature about her in 2003 when she ran for district attorney. Um, I didn't have a candidate. I wasn't endorsing, partly because of my daughter. But I liked her a lot. And um, one less woman was not a good thing to me. So The talk at that point, the beginning of December a year ago, was that Kamala Harris was not polling well enough with black voters in South Carolina, and she wasn't polling well enough in her home state of California either. It seemed like Democrats wanted somebody else. But then on November 3rd, she and Joe Biden got more votes than any ticket in American history, 7 million more votes than Donald Trump. What happened to Kamala Harris in the 11 months between the time she dropped out of the primaries, really before they ever began, and her historic triumph as the first woman vice president? Well, I think she did everything right in a way that she couldn't quite manage uh, as, as a presidential candidate. You know, I think she stayed on good terms with everybody. You know, there's a lot of speculation that she could never be the the Biden's pick because she did attack him famously um, about his anti-busing stance. But, you know, she continued to be gracious to him, to his staff. You know, interestingly, I recall she did not endorse him with all the other folks. She waited for Elizabeth Warren to get out of the race to do that. I I think woman to woman. Um, That was part of her part of her reasoning. But, you know, she just she then did everything she was asked until COVID made it impossible to campaign in person, but or nearly impossible. And uh, 
it's easy to forget what a formidable political talent she was given the way she stumbled running for president. It just, it, it clearly wasn't her time. So this is her time. Now let's want to pull the lens back a little more. You wrote a memorable piece for The Nation a year ago on the last day of 2019 with the fabulous title, This Effing Decade. The decade began with Obama taking office, you know, January 2009. And then what happened? And then we just had a, a backlash of, in some ways, unpredictable, but not necessarily proportions by white people and by the white right, fomented by a Republican Party that didn't used to have to rely as heavily on racism and decided that that was its, that was its strategy as early as 2012, if not in, in 2008. And so we started the decade enormously proud and happy that we had elected our first black president and we closed it with this monstrous racist in the White House and a Republican Party that was that had kowtowed to him for his whole four years. Uh, he was impeached, but he was acquitted by the Senate. Um, only Mitt Romney voted to convict him. And and we we you know we saw the rise of Fox News, a particularly virulent racial grievance version of Fox News, and you know it was evident pretty quickly as the decade began. Uh, and it was funny, you know, in President Obama's memoir, he writes about something that I actually wrote about at the time in real time. The fact that when he criticized the Cambridge Police Department. Um, for arresting Henry Louis Gates in his own home. He called it stupid, or I'm, I'm forgetting, you know, just very mild criticism. And he called it, yeah, he called it stupid to arrest him in his own house. Yeah. But his poll numbers with white people cratered. They went from like the high 50s to, into, the, into the 40s, and they never climbed above 50% again. And it was really, I remember watching it in real time and writing for Salon at that point, a piece called The Blackening of the President. And that, that as well as a few other controversies and Fox News is hammering his deep-seated, you know, anti-white racism, it happened in the course of a summer. And, you know, he never recovered. And part of what, if I'm recalling correctly, I took issue with was something that, you know, it is still going on too much, but I think a year later, the media uh, are, is better about it. And that is a kind of both siderism and, you know, there are extremists on both sides and a refusal to really call out racism when, you know, when it was evident, except by, for a while, a very few of us, the media complicity and all that was really painful to remember, read about, write about in real time uh, and and recap last year. But I feel like we could just, we could really almost rerun the piece this year. I might suggest that. So the media over the last decade have not, let us say, done their job, but there's still a more profound underlying question. This question that you posed in your book seven years ago, what's the matter with white people? As you show, this predates Trump. Trump was by far the most virulent anti-black candidate of the dozen or 20 or however many were running as Republicans in, in, in 2016. But uh, we still have to look at, at white America. I mean, not all of white America, not California, not New York City and so on, but a lot of white America. You've been thinking about this for a long time now. What do you think today? I don't like exit polls because in my experience, 
you know, when you get real precinct level, county level data a few months later, you find that the exit polls weren't correct. And this year, especially given the polling in general was terrible. I don't want to conclusively say that the percentage, for example, of white women supporting Trump actually went up. I'm not prepared to say that. But if it went down, it wasn't by much. Uh, and there, there's still this persistent sense there is a zero sum approach to society where some people getting more means we're getting less. And, you know, we don't want our tax dollars to go to pay for those people. And therefore, we don't have our tax dollars necessarily helping ourselves. The, the capacity of Trump to convince, you know, working class white people that he was on their side or one of them continues to be astonishing. I think the premise of the uh, 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign and a lot of progressives and leftists still think this is we just need a, you know, a more full-throated approach to, you know, working class issues and class politics. And I, I think we need that for a lot of reasons, but I don't necessarily think that that it's the answer because you know even the things that Obama did that that primarily benefited white people didn't help Obama and when white people were given a real full-throated defense of white supremacy uh, and full-throated permission for racism a lot of people took him up on it you know so um, I still don't have an answer. If I had an answer, I would write a sequel. Um, <laughs> but I think about it all the time, to be honest. Here we've talked about the Republican base. We've talked about the media. What about the Democrats over the last decade? How have they responded to what you call the carnival of racist bigotry the Republican Party was becoming over the last decade? Well, I mean, I think the Democratic Party has become much more diverse in that time, has embraced its status as the party of, uh, you know, people of color and women, but it also means we're a really big and fractious tent. And all those issues of gender and race and sexuality come into play. And then there's also issues of ideology. And, you know, we're ideologically a really big tent with Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin. So I I, I think it's easy to fault Democrats for not doing this or that. But, you know, when you look at, at somebody like Nancy Pelosi, who has an incredibly diverse, in every sense of the word, caucus to keep together. It, it's its problems are obvious, but the solutions, you know, I don't know. I don't know that they're always as easy as you know, leftist pundits, including myself, sometimes like to like to think they are. Oh, just stand up, be tough. And there were a lot of tactical issues as well as ideological issues that that led 2020 to be a pretty much of a disappointment except you know in the most important way so you know i think we're going to be puzzling over and i i've tried to continue to cover it because it i think we have to understand what happened in november to do anything differently in in 2022 we're not so much going to have trump to kick around anymore although he's still going to be kicking at us and uh i think there's going to have to be more of a reckoning with the especially the ideological uh diversity in the party a year ago uh before the iowa caucuses and the new hampshire primary you wrote quote only senators bernie sanders and elizabeth warren seem to see clearly the economic and social destruction wrought over the last decade and yet while Bernie Sanders won Michigan 
in, let's look at Michigan, in 2016, Biden won every county of Michigan in 2020. Why? Do you really have to ask? I mean, in 2016, Bernie Sanders was running against a woman, Hillary Clinton, uh, and in 2020, he wasn't. Uh, and so the arguments that people made at the time that I found frustrating that, oh, you know, Bernie beat her in, say, West Virginia, that means we're going to win back West Virginia if, if Bernie's our nominee. Well, Biden beat him he beat him virtually everywhere in all those white working class places where people thought the, you know, the issue was Bernie's strong class appeal. The issue was really sexism and relatedly Hillary Clinton's baggage, uh, to, to put it that way. Um, so, you know, it was very frustrating. It was very frustrating to watch for a lot of reasons. So now let's talk about Biden over the last year. A year ago, uh, Joe Biden said in New Hampshire, a sentence that you picked up on, that he might pick a Republican running mate. He said, quote, there's still some really decent Republicans out there, close quote. Well, he did not pick a Republican running mate. Thank God. Uh, I think Biden has evolved uh, over the last four years and certainly over the last year. He was not my first pick. He was probably, he was maybe in my top five. But I think the the impact of the pandemic, the diversity of the party, the ideological diversity of the party, his capacity to form a strong bond with Bernie Sanders, which eluded Hillary Clinton, and that wasn't just about sexism. Um, they just didn't hit it off. And I think Biden worked harder at that. I think Biden, he still makes noises about, I, you know, I'm going to, you know, work with Republicans and maybe I'll put one in the cabinet. Thank God that hasn't happened. Temperamentally and, and historically, he is that guy. But I think he has learned his lesson partly from what happened to Barack Obama, but but specifically what's happened under Trump, that people that we once would have thought of as reasonably decent Republicans, you know, Lindsey Graham, the great friend of John McCain, you know, I'm not talking ideologically, but I am talking characterologically or in terms of a capacity to compromise or see value himself in working across the aisle. Um, I think that those people are gone. They're either literally gone, like John McCain, or their souls have been stolen, like Lindsey Graham. And Biden's not a stupid man. Um, he still makes some of the same rhetorical uh, feints or flourishes, but I think he knows what he's up against. And I think he wants to be the president for the moment. You know, he talks about his task as being more like FDR's, even than Barack Obama's. And, and that's a good thing. We're going to have to hold him to it and we're going to have to push him. But I'm I'm optimistic that he has grown and that, you know, Harris will be a good influence and that it will be a center left administration, not just a center administration. I hope I'm right. We're going to have to push him. Joan Walsh, reader at the nation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, John. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener. And we have some news from KPFK. As you may have heard, we have just gotten a challenge grant of $20,000 from the Do Foundation. That's an organization that supports nonprofits in the fields of medical relief, welfare, education, community service, environmental programs, and arts organizations. Challenge grant means they will match contributions from listeners. So your 
$100 pledge turns into $200 for KPFK. But there's a catch. You have to do it before the end of 2020. Today's the last day of 2020. That means you have to do it right now, immediately. Go to kpfk.org donate or call 818-985-5735 right now. Give whatever you can. And remember that the Dew Foundation will double your contribution. 2020 has been a miserable year for all of us. And KPFK has been there to cover it all for you with really smart people. Ian Masters, Sonali Kolhatkar, Margaret Prescott, Amy Goodman, Mitch Jezerich, Susie Weissman, all providing the kind of analysis and information you can't get anywhere else. Not on MSNBC, not on CNN, not on NPR. That's why you listen to KPFK. We covered the low points of 2020, the COVID epidemic, Republican efforts at vote suppression, Trump's efforts to undermine the election and reverse the results. And we also joined in the high points of 2020. And of course, the highest point of the year, and indeed for many years, was the Black Lives Matter protests of the past summer. Millions of people in hundreds of towns and cities taking to the streets, not just for a day, but for months, demanding not only an end to police abuse of power, but a fundamental restructuring of the systems of government, rethinking what public safety really means. KPFK has been there for all of that, too. And that's why we need you today, in the last hours of 2020, to make an end-of-year pledge of support to keep KPFK on the air for another season. And remember that thanks to the Dew Foundation Challenge Grant, your end-of-year contribution will be matched and doubled. Your $50 becomes $100. Your $100 becomes $200. But you have to do it now, before the end of 2020, before the end of the day. Go to kpfk.org donate or call 818-985-5735. Do it right now. Thanks to all our listeners for all your support in 2020. We really appreciate it. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and Little Eric. Boy, did those kids get in trouble this year. For our Children's Hour Year in Review, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, best known for her work on Haiti, and a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. 2020 began with Don Jr.'s book Triggered on the bestseller list. He joins a family of authors. His mother, Ivana, wrote one. His sister wrote a couple. And of course, his father is listed as the author of a monster bestseller, Trump Art of the Deal, Family of Writers. It's wonderful. We think of Martin Amos and Kingsley Amos. We think of Alexander Coburn and Claude Coburn. And now we have Don Jr. and Donald Trump. Aren't we lucky? <laughs> the, litera the literati at the top. 
That's what I like to say. Well, Don Jr.'s book, Triggered, has the subtitle, How the Left Wants to Silence Us, which makes it one of the few books whose subtitle was disproved almost as soon as the book was published. It was disproved on the author's book tour. Please explain. So Don Jr. went to UCLA, and uh, his book event was um, sponsored by a right-wing campus group that did not want to have a Q&A because they knew (laughs) that although they are right-wing, there was a further right-wing group or a bunch of groups who wanted to uh, do what people often do at book talks, which is make speeches during the Q&A thing. And they were going to say all sorts of horrifying things and embarrass Don Jr. because they feel that the these these really fringe right-wingers, although fringe may not be the right word anymore, we're going to spew, uh, you know, white, straight, uh, self-identifying as Christian, anti-immigration, homophobic, racist, anti-Semitic junk at Don Jr. And that's not really how he wanted to um, present his book. So in in effect, he was silenced by a right-wing group. His book about being silenced by the left, he was silenced by the right. And he was really surprised. I mean, when you watch the video, it's as if he doesn't really know that this is the right wing trying to shut him down. He thinks it's the left wing and he lectures them. And then girlfriend Kimberly Guilfoyle gets up on her high horse. She lectures them, says, your parents won't be very proud of you, will they? As if they were little libtards, which they highly were not. It was a great moment of irony. But of course, the Trump family doesn't understand irony. So And what was scheduled to be a two-hour event, Don left the stage after about a half an hour and just called it quits. He had to go. He was silenced. I'm so glad. Then the COVID hit, and in February, sort of very early in, in the pandemic, Don Jr. said, the Democrats want millions to die from the coronavirus. That was sort of provocative. That's been an ongoing sort of argument. <laughs> and the argument has always been they want millions understood Trump supporters, millions of Trump supporters to die. <laughs> but of course, that's not how it worked. Cities were hit hardest at the beginning. That's where uh, that's where the uh, Democratic strongholds are. And But this has been an ongoing uh, Trump trope. That's a good thing, a Trump trope. The younger generation has played quite a role in kind of spinning what the virus should mean to the Trump base. Don said this, the Democrats want to kill millions with this virus. And then Eric Trump suggested later on that the Democrats created the virus specifically to prevent Donald Trump from holding his electoral rallies. But of course, it didn't prevent a guy like Donald Trump from holding electoral rallies. First of all, he was standing more than six feet away from everybody at the rally, whereas everybody else at the rally who had come to love him were standing all together so that they could get sick. And then in April, when we were all locked down, Jared was put in charge of the administration's virus response. Huge job. What were his responsibilities? Well, he had to hand out um, contracts to companies to make PPEs, to make masks, to make ventilators. But he, instead of like competing them and doing them really fast and brilliantly, he handed them out to cronies. He hired young people who studied finance to run the response to the coronavirus instead of doctors, epidemiologists, and people who understood fast industrial uh, switches. 
And then he also shunned responsible and trusted health companies' offers of, uh, you know, virus, um, epidemiology, and also the uh, ventilators. And so we were left buying ventilators from China in the end. And to pursue that end of buying ventilators and other PPE, uh, Jared created something called Project Airbridge. How did Project Airbridge work? Project Airbridge enlisted private companies whose uh, names or which entities were not revealed by the Trump administration to make and bring in ventilators. And it was unclear who was going to get the money, but it was, you know, the U.S. budget that was paying for this without any transparency on who was getting the money. So, of course, one assumes uh, cronies and friends. And how successful was Project Airbridge and Jared's other uh, efforts to produce and distribute PPE to the states? It was basically a hugely inadequate uh, response that probably cost the lives not only of many patients, but of many frontline emergency medical responders, doctors, and nurses, because they didn't have the proper uh, self-protective equipment. Jared was too busy getting Morocco to agree to peace with Israel to manage to get ventilators to hospitals in the United States. So that was part of the disaster of the Trump administration's virus response, along with all of Trump himself, you know, discouraging people from wearing masks. And Then the Trump kids had various other events that brought them into the news. We had the memorable day that Ivanka carried the Bible across Lafayette Square. Heck of a story. Remind us of that one. So that was the day that there were protesters outside and Trump decided to tear gas them. They were perfectly peaceful. Trump decided to tear gas them. And then he walked across Lafayette Square to St. John's Church, unbeknownst to St. John's Church, which is a very anti-Trump church. And Ivanka followed him in her outfit with her giant white designer bag that apparently costs around $1,500. And out of the giant white designer bag, she plucked a, a <laughs> tiny little Bible and gave it to him. And there's a very funny meme um, on social media that shows Trump looking at the Bible as though he's never seen one before, <laughs> inspecting it as though maybe he could go on a date with it. And then opening it up and holding it very seriously. And Trump was asked by the by the press assembled, is that your Bible, sir? And what was his answer? That is a Bible. But from the way he looks on it, at it online, it, it looks like maybe he wasn't sure even if it was a Bible or what is a Bible. <laughs> and was it the Old Testament? I'm not sure that an Orthodox Jewish family is supposed to have a Christian Bible in their house or anywhere on their persons. And then there were a bunch of books about and by members of the Trump family. The most notable was Trump's niece, Mary Trump, who published a book called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Well, first tell us about Mary Trump. Who exactly is she? So Mary Trump is the daughter of Fred Trump Jr., Fred Trump Jr. is the oldest and unsuccessful son of Fred Trump, the patriarch of the Trump family. He had a lot of problems. He wasn't sure he wanted to go into the family business. Donald Trump was always like right behind him. I'll go into the family business, Dad. I'll. And, uh, 
And he became an alcoholic and then he was sort of very ill for a long time. And then he was locked out of the family will with the collusion of his siblings. Um, and, and Mary, his daughter, therefore was locked out of that will. But what she has is a fabulous amount of just like firsthand family knowledge about how the family operated and and about Donald Trump bullying and being bullied. And it's just a, it's a really interesting book. And she also has a uh, PhD in clinical psychology, which I guess makes her a doctor like Jill Biden. <laughs> um, so most of this story is about how the patriarch crushed his oldest son, who then died miserably an alcoholic, and the number two son happily usurped his place. But the story of Donald Trump's childhood isn't such a happy one either, since his mother was hospitalized for like a year when he was, when the next kid was, after the next kid was born. So he was basically without his mother at what we all now know as a crucial developmental stage. Not only without his mother, but his father was around and the father was not a great parent. And eventually Donald Trump was sent off to military school. And um, Mary tells the story really well of how Donald Trump's dad would go up and visit him every weekend. <laughs> but it wasn't to be nice or because he cared. It was to monitor him and make sure he was doing what needed to be done to at least graduate from it so he could then get him into his next school. And so he became the son his father wanted. And what kind of son was that? Fred Trump was a very tough businessman and uh wheeler dealer of not entirely uh, upstanding kind. And uh, I think Donald really wanted wanted to do that, according to Mary, and and felt that that was the, the proper behavior for someone who wanted to succeed in the world. He couldn't understand any other way of succeeding in the world. He had seen his brother go down by being kind of just a little too nice and having separate ambitions and and dividing himself from the father. So Donald went sort of whole hog to preserve, you know, to preserve himself if you want to be sympathetic or because he was that kind of creature if you don't want to be so sympathetic. And then came the Republican National Convention where almost all the, all the Trumps were present. Some of them gave speeches. Some of them gave notable speeches. The most notable one really was Kimberly Guilfoyle, the girlfriend of Don Jr., Remind us what her RNC speech was like. When you watch it, you realize that they probably gave it to her because she was most able to speak to the base without any, without any embarrassment or shame. And she didn't have to appeal to anyone else. And so she just went for it. She uh, shrieks anti-Semitic, homophobic, homophobic dog whistles, like her reference to cosmopolitan elites. I mean, a term we haven't heard since Stalin left office, basically. <laughs> You know, it's not a term she grew up with. She she raved like Mussolini. She's she appeared in a red sheath that most reminded me of Mephistopheles when it didn't remind me of Kim Kardashian. And she just <laughs> went on a, a six and a half minute spew that was like unlike anything else at what was a convention that was unlike anything else. So people began speculating that, well, Kimberly Guilfoyle seems to have some kind of ambitions to make it as an independent Republican voice, you know, speaking to the base. 
But then uh, the New Yorker published a devastating piece by Jane Mayer about Kimberly Guilfoyle and why she left Fox News. What did Jane Mayer have to say about that? Well, so if you looked at Kim's Wikipedia page, I don't know what it says now, but if you looked at it a, a while before the Jane Mayer piece came out, it said she left Fox News to work on the Trump campaign. But actually she was let go because uh, um, one of her assistants at Fox charged her with uh, sexual harassment, including some very bizarre behaviors. And what happened in the end was Fox reportedly paid Guilfoyle's assistant more than $4 million to stop her from bringing charges against Kimberly. So according to the New Yorker piece, may I go on, John? Because Please. It's a little <laughs> salacious in a family show, but I'm going to read it anyway. The New Yorker piece said that the assistant said she was frequently required to work at Guilfoyle's New York apartment while the Fox host displayed herself naked and was shown, and the girl was shown photographs of the genitalia of men with whom Guilfoyle had had sexual relations. That's in the New Yorker. The draft complaint also alleged that Guilfoyle spoke incessantly and luridly about her sex life and on one occasion demanded a massage of her bare thighs. It was that kind of career-ending piece in, in a normal world. We can never say for sure. And then very late in the year, suddenly we learned that some another person, Lara Trump, was going to run for Senate in North Carolina in two years when a Republican seat uh, opens up. Who is Laura Trump? Who even knew about Laura Trump? Even even Donald Trump said to her once, oh, wait, like you're Eric's wife? I couldn't even pick you out of a lineup. I couldn't pick you out of a lineup. This is his daughter-in-law, the mother of his grandchildren. And he says, I couldn't pick her out of a lineup. She's... um. 38. She's like a cookie cutter type of Trump female, which may be why he couldn't pick her out of a lineup. She looks like everybody else in the lineup. <laughs> um, she's kind of interesting. She was a, a pastry chef before she moved to CBS Inside Edition. You explained that career leap to me, John. I'm not really sure. And then she later came on to the Trump presidential campaign. She was already going out with Eric or no, she was already married to Eric. Um, and she did something. She hosted something called Real News Updates, which, of course, it's Trump world, which is like Orwell world. So if it says real news updates, you know, they're not real news. That's that's the clue. Um, and she was also a regular guest on Fox News. She essentially became a spokesperson for Trump. Well, it'll be pretty interesting if Laura Trump becomes the first person of the generation of the children to run for office, because we always thought Don Jr. was going to be the first. Or Ivanka. Have we forgotten Ivanka? Please. You would have thought that the blood children, since this is, of course, a man, Donald Trump Sr., who believes in blood and dynasty and uh, royalty and monarchy and authority, you would think that only the blood children would be el eligible to inherit the mantle. But apparently, Lara Trump has a different idea about that. She's willing to inherit the mantle, even if it's not hers. Finally, last time you and I talked, I asked you whether Ivanka and Jared would actually be able to move back to Manhattan. Would they ever eat lunch in that town again, I asked. We have news updates about that. They're not going back to New York. <laughs> they're moving to Miami. Now, what's that going to be like? Well, first of all, they're not moving to a house. They bought a piece of land. So we don't know where they're going to stay 
between January 20th and when their giant, no doubt, McMansion on Billionaire's Row in Miami is built. Even if you're buying a $30 million lot on a private island with special security, you can't be sure you're going to build your house. You can't know that's what the future will bring. But that's a big, heavy investment that they're making in this piece of land. It's not exactly the kind of move that you want to make if you're going to then declare that you are the next leader of the people. Amy Willens, with our Children's Watch update for the end of 2020, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener. This is Trump Watch, and we have a special request. We still need help in finding a new name for our show. On Wednesday, January 20th at noon, Chief Justice John Roberts will swear in Joe Biden as president, and we won't need to be Trump watchers anymore. So what should we call our show starting January 20th at noon? Some of the leading suggestions so far include Politics on Edge, Washington on Fire, The Action Faction, some of the more promising suggestions <clears throat> sent in by people like you have already been taken by other podcasts, especially song titles. Gimme Some Truth is a financial advice podcast. Gimme Some Truth this week, annuities. A Day in the Life is a podcast about people who work in different jobs. Don't Think Twice is a podcast about finding a second job. Come Together is a sex advice podcast. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, the DeSica film title, is a podcast with hosts from three different generations. You Can Do Better. Send us your ideas. Email new.trumpwatch at gmail.com. That's new.trumpwatch, one word, at gmail.com. And thanks to everybody who has contributed so far. Please keep trying. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. And now it's time to talk about the best films of 2020. For that, we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor, longtime critic and writer whose work has appeared at the L.A. Weekly, The New York Times, and NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Happy to be here, John. I'm drinking, it's very cold here, so I'm drinking uh, British tea and out of my keep calm and carry on mug, so we're all set. Keep calm and carry on. Well, we've watched a lot of movies this year, of course, at home on TV. Uh, you're a little ahead of us. You get to see some that we'll be streaming in the next couple of weeks. It's been a big year, especially for black filmmakers, and I wonder what's at the top of your best list. Well, it's wonderful that actually, you know, I think Black Lives Matter and, and uh, has really made a difference in the arts because we now have um, a much bigger roster 
uh, of uh, black and to some to a lesser degree Asian films to uh, to choose from, and so that makes a great topic for today because most of them are are playing now. At the top of my list is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is playing on Netflix. As most of our listeners probably know, it's it's based on a play by August Wilson and uh, it's directed by George C. Wolfe, who's also a theatre director. And it is in many ways uh, a theatre piece. And I, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. Um, it was produced by Denzel Washington, who now has a, a big 10 picture deal with HBO. So we can expect some more good stuff to, uh, to come possibly with him in it. He's not in this, but uh, like another movie I'm going to talk about next, it's a, a theatrical piece that's mostly set in a Chicago Chicago recording studio in 1927. Ma Rainey, of course, is a, a real person who um, revitalized blues singing um, and was one of the first uh, blues, black blues singers to actually record her work. So the, that sets the scene where she's arguing endlessly with her white manager because the, the, the movie is really about artistic control uh, and commercial exploitation and to some degree about open racism, not particularly on the part of this manager, although he's a kind of beleaguered guy who's being chivied into trying to exploit her work. She's very popular. And she is played here just spectacularly, as one might, we've grown to expect, from by Viola Davis, who's almost unrecognizable except for her extremely expressive eyes. She's very large, as, as Ma Rainey was. Um, she's a creature of appetites. She certainly um, has a wide sexual range, shall we say, a wide range of sexual pre preference. Is openly sexual. She's truculent. She's extremely canny about the business, uh, but she has very limited power. And much of the play is about her fights with with her white manager over control over her material, but also over her identity as a black woman on which she insists. The the play and the film are set at a time when her kind of blues was going out of style and shortly thereafter she was fired by Paramount uh, fairly unceremoniously. Here she asserts her limited powers in small ways, but it's not played for pathos. That is, she reserves the right to be incredibly late to, to recording sessions, to have all her favorite people in the room with her. And if he doesn't uh, provide her with her regular Coca-Cola, there is there are big scenes to follow. <laughs> That's not just funny, it's also very poignant in a way, because when it comes to big decisions about money and control, She's still very canny, but she has no power. The movie, the production design is wonderful. The costumes are great. Uh, and there is a wonderful, there are a bunch, you know, the band, her backup group is played by a wonderful uh, group of actors, including Coleman Domingo, who is a, a guitar and, and a trombone player, and I think is in the running for a Best Supporting Actor. But of course, it is also poignant for the fact that this was Chadwick Boseman's 
last film. In fact, yes. he, he does look rather thin already in the mm. film compared with before. And he's absolutely superb uh, as Leve, who's a, a cocky and ambitious young musician, also very talented, but also um, a tragic figure with a traumatic past that really deforms the way he his presence in the world, and in particular, his wish to ingratiate himself with the the white manager. So um, it's it's a very vibrant film. The music is just wonderful, uh, but it's also in some ways a very tragic film because no no black person emerges from it well, except for the fact that she continues to insist on her identity, both as a singer, a black woman, and a woman who, who lives her life the way she wants to. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, streaming now on Netflix. What else is on your list? Well, the next film, which is also set in a single room, um, One Night in Miami. Um, it's a very compelling movie, nonetheless, um, which will play on, on uh, Amazon. And it's a fictionalized meeting between Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, uh, the uh, NFL player Jim Brown, and the singer Sam Cooke, just after Muhammad Ali's surprise win over Sonny Liston, which establishes him as a world-class boxer. But it's also about, uh, more controversially, about his conversion to Islam. The movie stars Kingsley Benadir as um, as extremely intellectual Malcolm X, also with a very wry sense of humor. Um, uh, Muhammad Ali is play, played by uh, Eli Gorey. Jim Brown is played by Aldis Hodge, ve Hodge very well. Um, and, and you see that, that uh, the effect on of racism and prohibition of, of uh, rights, you know, musical rights and sports rights and so on in every sphere. That's what the conceit of the movie is. And Sam Cooke is wonderfully played by Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton, um, who I'm, I suspect is also going to be uh, up for a, a, an Academy Award. It's certainly the juiciest parts because Sam Cooke, of course, is, you know, he was a player. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so a lot of the energy of the movie goes to him. The screenplay is uh, by Kemp Powers from uh, his own play, and it's excellent. Um, this could be, you know, it's a, it's a real risk to make movies like this because what works on the stage doesn't necessarily uh, translate to movies, but the production design, I think, is very good. These are four men who have all won power, and the film is about a discussion about how they should use it to help um, the civil rights movement and so on. They have very, very different views about this. There's a lot of fun banter and a lot of very earnest debate about whether they should buy into their own industries or create their own power structure within the, the black community. So it's quite, quite fascinating um, and a very satisfying movie to watch. I loved it. One Night in Miami, about a fictional meeting with Malcolm X, with Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. That stream is January 15th on Amazon Prime. Got any more for us? 
I have uh, one more, uh, actually uh, two more, but uh, one more about uh, that set within the black community, the 40 year old version, which is a play on the 2005 comedy, The 40 Year Old Virgin. Uh, it's directed, written and produced uh, by uh, Radha Blank, who is a playwright and a rapper. And it's really her own story about trying to break into into the the world of um, stand-up and, and movies and so on. And it's really, again, another film about how Black artists are co-opted by whites. So all three, um, all three movies uh, are either, you know, in the arts or in, in sports, uh, where you know, people don't don't think so much about racism in that in those areas, but when it comes to the business of those uh, particular endeavors, uh, there is both racism and exploitation. So all three of these movies are great. Uh, Rada Blank is very funny, um, but also very forceful and very much her own kind of uh, person. So I, I, I recommend that. Um, the 40-year-old version, let me just say, is on Netflix now. Yes, you can see it now. And uh, it will be interesting to see whether it, it uh, gets nominated as uh, first, for first, fe first feature in a variety of awards. I suspect that the critics are probably going to be more active around this movie than, uh, than the Academy, but I don't know for sure, obviously. And I have one other movie that um, we, we there has been some improvement in um, the production of Asian movies, but not nearly as much as in the black community. There is a film called Minari, which uh, is supposed to have a theatrical release in February and then to come out on VOD, but nobody seems to know when or, or where. It's directed by Lee Isaac Chung, and it's about a Korean family who moved to Arkansas in the 1980s to start their own farm um, producing Korean vegetables and whether there's a market for it. It's lovely in the same way as Sideways, a movie we discussed a couple of weeks ago is lovely, which is a small, um, it's a quiet movie. It's very dialogue heavy, um, but there's been a bit of a fuss about it, uh, a brouhaha, because the Academy has designated Minari, which the critics just love, as a foreign language movie, uh, even though I don't know what proportion of the of the movie is in, is in English, but it's quite a lot, and subtitles are very easy to read, as I keep telling my students. And uh, definitely, uh, it should be included, I think, in English language. But for the time being, the Academy is uh, is standing firm. I really recommend it. It's just a, a quiet movie about how. They adjust to this, you know, totally new situation uh, in a place where there are very few other Americans, uh, other Korean Koreans. Yeah. Well, the latest on Minari is that it's going to open theatrically on February 12th and sometime after that unspecified streaming on, on, uh, on TV. We have time for one more briefly. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is a really terrific Russian film called Beanpole, um, which uh, is 
is streaming now uh, on Amazon, also on Canopy, if you happen to have that, uh, and will almost certainly end up on as a candidate for Best Foreign Film because it's gotten such good reviews. Uh, I thought it was marvelous. It's it's set in 1945 in Leningrad. So it's about the devastation that war um, reeks, has wrought on, on ordinary Russians, but it's done in a very small scale and very specific way. Uh, it's, there's a, it's a young nurse who has PTSD and, uh, or some version of it, and she blacks out from time to time. And as a result of blacking out, um, she manages accidentally to kill um, a young boy that she's looking after for somebody else. I don't want to say more about his identity, um, but it's it's hand and the, the the film is about the fallout from that uh, in her relationship with the, her best friend uh, and also with the doctor who is her boss in this hospital that is totally overwhelmed with. Uh, uh, horribly disfigured uh, veterans, uh, but it is very small in scale. It's really a three-hander. Um, it's directed by a, a young man named Kantemir Balagov, who I suspect has a brilliant future because everything about it, including the production design in and out of the of the hospital, it is a wonderful evocation of a society that has basically been torn apart by by war. I highly recommend it. Beanpole, the Russian film about the aftermath of the World War II siege of Leningrad, is streaming now on Amazon Prime and I think also on Hulu, YouTube, and Google Play, and also on Canopy. Uh, well, we've talked about the best. It's only fair to say something about the worst, and that responsibility falls to me. I think the most hated finale of a TV miniseries in 2020 was... The Undoing on HBO. That was, you may remember, the one starring Hugh Grant as the Manhattan doctor accused of murder and Nicole Kidman as his glamorous wife with the amazing hair. Nobody that I knew liked it, but everybody watched it anyway. Alas, uh, I have fr Facebook friends who almost sent me to Coventry. For, sorry, that's British for not <laughs> refusing to speak to me anymore um, because I, I disliked it so much and they uh, they thought it was marvellous. But as a piece of, you know, filmmaking, it's just a disaster. There's great acting in it, but uh, it really is the uh, silly. So I, I completely agree with you on that. Ella Taylor is our Virus Time TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. A pleasure, John. Back to tea. <laughs> this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, and we have some news from KPFK. As you may have heard, we have just gotten a challenge grant of $20,000 from the Do Foundation. That's an organization that supports nonprofits in the fields of medical relief, welfare, education, community service, environmental programs, and arts organizations. Challenge Grant means they will match contributions from listeners. So your $100 pledge turns into $200 for KPFK. But there's a catch. You have to do it before the end of 2020. Today's the last day of 2020. That means you have to do it right now immediately. 
Go to kpfk.org slash donate or call 818-985-5735 right now. Give whatever you can. And remember that the Do Foundation will double your contribution. 2020 has been a miserable year for all of us. KPFK has been there to cover it all for you with really smart people. Ian Masters, Sonali Kolhatkar, Margaret Prescott, Amy Goodman, Mitch Jezerich, Susie Weissman, all providing the kind of analysis and information you can't get anywhere else. Not on MSNBC, not on CNN, not on NPR. That's why you listen to KPFK. We covered the low points of 2020, the COVID epidemic, Republican efforts at vote suppression, Trump's efforts to undermine the election and reverse the results. And we also joined in the high points of 2020. And of course, the highest point of the year, and indeed for many years, was the Black Lives Matter protests of the past summer. Millions of people in hundreds of towns and cities taking to the streets, not just for a day, but for months demanding not only an end to police abusive power, but a fundamental restructuring of the systems of government, rethinking what public safety really means. KPFK has been there for all of that too. And that's why we need you today in the last hours of 2020 to make an end of year pledge of support to keep KPFK on the air for another season. And remember that thanks to the Do Foundation Challenge Grant, your end-of-year contribution will be matched and doubled. Your $50 becomes $100. Your $100 becomes $200. But you have to do it now, before the end of 2020, before the end of the day. Go to kpfk.org donate or call 818-985-5735. Do it right now. Thanks to all our listeners for all your support in 2020. We really appreciate it. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.